Welcome to Broken Office Chair, a new podcast produced by Alternatives, a Chicago-based nonprofit. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' executive director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native and first-generation Salvadorian Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to talk frankly about the most important issues facing the nonprofit sector. A quick listener note, this episode contains language that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. For more information, check out the show's description. Today, Bessie will be having a conversation with Diana Castañeda about anti-Blackness in the Latinx community, their ideas to combat it, why they chose to say Latinx instead of Hispanic, and their experiences working in the nonprofit industry as female Latinx leaders. Diana is the Director of Family Services at Community Counseling Centers of Chicago, also known as C4. For over nine years, Diana has provided services to low-income individuals and their families in a variety of roles, always prioritizing and advocating for access to quality mental health services for everyone, regardless of socioeconomic status. Hi, Diana. Thank you for being here. Today's topic is anti-Blackness and Latinx communities. And so I know this is a topic that's really also really important to you. You want to talk a little bit about the work that you do, how you got here, why this topic is important to you. Thank you for having me. So right now, my current role is I'm director of youth and family services at a community mental health agency in Chicago. We have several locations, but I mostly work out of our Humboldt Park location. And so for me, I came into this field always knowing that I wanted to work with poor Black and brown people. That was my goal from the beginning, and I wanted to do it in this therapeutic way. I wanted to do it as a therapist. I went to school. I got my degrees. I became a therapist. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Did that actually for six and a half years on the front lines at at C4. And then the longer I lived and the more our landscape changed in general. Like when I was in grad school, it was the tipping points of people beginning to have conversations about race. And so when I was in grad school, it was a lot of like, how do white people, how do folks in white bodies work with BIPOC people? And since then, I think there's been more movement to also support BIPOC folks working with people that are also of different races than them. And so I'm in the field and I see this revolution happening and I'm very, very happy about it. And I realized that, you know, there's still a long way to go and there's a lot of systemic issues. So as a therapist, then I begin to realize that something like racism is inherently traumatic. And how do we treat that? And how do we talk about that? And then, I, and then I'm in the field longer and I realize, you know, something I already knew, but have to like revisit in this way, which is black and brown people are often treated interchangeably, but our identities, our, our individual identities are a lot more complicated than space allows in the grand picture. And it's certainly become a passion of mine to kind of address the issues in the Black and Brown communities, including the issues that we have with each other. And so in starting this conversation, I think part of the first thing I want to say is the meta thing, which is this conversation I really enjoy and appreciate having with you, Bessie. And obviously I'm nervous about <laughs> it kind of being more widespread because my fear, and, and you know, some people are going to call it irrational, but I'm just going to name it, is that us admitting out loud in this public way kind of airing our dirty laundry is going to be misused or misconstrued to say like 
we're the racist ones, we're the problem, we're the reason Black people can't get ahead or fill in the blank or whatever here, which is a very reductionist, ignorant way of thinking about things. And so my hope is that we're able to talk about our experiences, yours and I, and it's not kind of overgeneralized to only demonize what's happening instead of trying to cope with the complexity of what we're trying to say here, which is anti-Blackness does absolutely exist in the Latinx community and we need to address it. We need to do better. Yeah. And I really appreciate you saying that. I know we talked about that beforehand and how scary that topic is and how people can hear anti-Blackness in our communities and not hear anything else that we have to say, but like, especially right now that there's this push to have people of color in leadership positions and therapist positions, this nuance becomes extremely important because if the therapist is not aware of their bias and how it comes through, how does that impact your client? I don't know for you, but for me, I remember being in grad school and having to take the diversity class and it'd be like, okay, how do you work with Latinx populations? How do you work with Black populations? How do you work with Asian? And it was always from the white perspective. And the literature is from the white perspective. Nobody ever talks about how are you a Latina therapist, for example, working with Black populations? Mm -hmm. And what messages have you heard growing up that contradict or affirm what it is that you're seeing in front of you? And how does that impact the service delivery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've had similar experiences, a lot of deficits in my own training. And I do see that there is some movement happening in terms of moving more black and brown people into leadership. But, you know, I'll be honest, I had a moment not that long ago in supervision, one of the supervision of my team, I just kind of had to say out loud and maybe, or in my head, one of those two things where it's like, I realize now that as being Latina, I being looked to lead black men in my field and, and black women in my field because of the position that I'm in now. And I'm like, damn, do I even know how? Because I feel like I got this far. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in a leadership position. I'm, I'm pushing conversations about race. I'm, you know, working the the system to kind of like, let's admit that we all see race and let's right there. And now that I've accomplished those things, the complexity of what it means to be Latina and lead Black men and women in this field, I don't feel as confident in. And it goes back to deficits in training and support for, for people like me. But I, I do feel fortunate the support I've gotten so far does allow me to feel comfortable having difficult conversations. Like, of course, I see anti-Blackness in our community. Of course, I experienced it growing up. How do we change that is kind of a little bit. How do we address that in this field? How do we bridge those difficult conversations with people who haven't had the benefit of the privileges I've had. It gets a little bit more complicated. And when we talk about leading Black individuals in our field, too, we have to consider that those same individuals may have experienced anti-Blackness from people in our community, right? Yeah. So they're coming in with trauma. And so you're thinking, oh, I'm a person of color. I care about this topic. I push this topic forward. And all they're seeing is that you're not Black. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing to know. And I think it came up again, too post-George Floyd and what was happening in Pilsen and Little Village with the, I wouldn't, I don't even know what to call it, but it became really unsafe for Black people to go into those communities. Mm -hmm. And so I want to kind of like take a step back and, and, you know, we're talking about this conversation in present. We know it exists. Mm -hmm. We know it's there. There's many ways it shows up. How did we even get these thoughts in our head, right? Like, let's take it back (laughs) and talk about like, what are some of the messages we heard 
uh-huh. growing up that kind uh-huh. of put these thoughts in people's heads that we don't even think mm-hmm. are problematic till we get older. We're like, oh shit, we heard that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of specific examples, I would say it's things like hearing, oh, don't dress like that, you know, pointing to a black person on the street or like, don't say AIDS, you know, don't talk like you're a black person. But overall, you know, regardless of the specific examples, the general message is like, don't act black, don't associate with black people. You're not black. Black is bad. Overall. My favorite, and I'm saying this sarcastically because people can't hear me, can't see my face, but my favorite is this term that we have in Latinx families, mejorando la raza. And so for non-Spanish speakers, that means to improve the race. And this is what happens when you, for example, marry white. You're mejorando la raza. And so like this message that white is better and that's what you're ascribing to or like these things about like don't stay out in the sun because, you know, te vas a poner morenita. Yeah, it's darker. You don't want to be darker. It's also, I'm saying, indigenous, right? Yeah. We also have that problem because that's don't get dark or your hair is too straight or all of that also has to do with like our indigenous ancestry and not wanting to associate with that. Let's actually talk about that, right? Let's talk about this because I know that post George Floyd, there was this conversation happening in Latinx communities about whether being white passing was the correct term or being white was the correct term. And there was a lot of like, you know, back and forth. And so I think one of the things that's really important for people to know is how would we even get into this argument and what does it mean to be a Latinx person? What is our history? So I don't know if you want to do the initial breakdown. (laughs) I mean, the first thing I'll say is that it's very difficult to define Latinx because we are not a monolith and most races are not, right? But you're talking about putting together people who I guess speak Spanish, perhaps, let's say that's one of our our shared things, but who come from a vast variety of countries with different cultures, with different experiences. And then even here in the US, we're talking about, you know, being Dominican is different than being Mexican. Being first generation is different than the people in Texas where the board crossed them. And so what Latinx is and how you understand it varies wildly depending on your own history and your own ethnicity and your own family's narrative of what's happened to them. Yeah, and how much, but that's also really interesting. So, you know, right before we got on the podcast, I talked a little bit about the difference between Hispanic and Latinx because yeah. we're talking, we're, we're saying Latinx intentionally, yes, right? Yes. And I remember the moment in which I was in college and I was corrected because I kept saying Hispanic. Because, you know, Latinos sounded bougie and elitist to me. I was like, what is this? What the hell is this? And who came up with this? And he was like, Hispanic means that you were colonized by the Spanish. And he's like, we don't acknowledge our colonization history. And I was like, oh. He's like, yeah, you were literally the Spanish property. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's interesting. And he's like, whereas Latinos, that's the, the, the region that we are from. Like, that makes sense, right? And we've evolved because Spanish is a gender language to say Latinx. Right. And so that's kind of where I want to take it back to the fact that we don't even talk about the fact that as Latinx people, we have a ton of European history because that's seen as a good thing in our families. Right. So what what was that? How did we end up with so much Latin in European history? Why don't we talk about that? <laughs> I mean, for me, short answer is colonization and white supremacy, systemic racism, But I will say that I love the idea that someone told you, like, in so many words, we're decolonizing ourselves because that's where the work is at. 
anti-Blackness, anti-Indigenousness exists because of colonization. That's where this thing, this whole thing started. Spanish came in, raped our ancestors, and here we are now, and just associating a lot more with the, the Spanish part of ourselves, which are also the European part of ourselves. People never miss a chance to say like, oh, a Mexican person can have black hair and blue eyes, but you never see anyone going around talking about, well, a Mexican person can also have black skin. Drives me nuts. So absolutely, at every chance, because of our colonization, people take the chance to say like, oh, how great our Spanish side is without acknowledging the complexity of who we are and the other wonderful parts of ourselves too. Yeah, it was in college again, you know, I was reading this book and I took a Latino studies course and it was so interesting because I was reading this book and they were like, you know, Latinos, again, I'm dating myself, early 2000s. We didn't use Latinx as much, right? They're like, Latinos, we're so proud of our golden skin and our dark features and our straight nose and our full lips, but we never acknowledge that this comes from rape and genocide and slavery, and that's how we got to look like yeah. what, we, what we look like. And so a lot of people don't know that the, what was when the slave trade was happening, it was multiple boat stops, right? So the largest amount of Africans to be enslaved were not actually brought to the U.S., but I think it's to Brazil, right? And so you have large Black populations throughout South America, the Caribbean, et cetera, that were all brought in with the intention of slavery in addition to enslaving Indigenous people. And so one of the interesting things for me to learn as I started to learn a lot about our history is that how we got to this European majority mestizo mix, right? Mm -hmm. Was that Europeans had a different approach than the U.S. to how to handle the issue of indigenous and black people in Central and South America. And so their thought was, if we can wipe out those bloodlines, then we don't have to deal with them. But their thought was not around wiping out just in genocide, but also in purposely mixing you can't see my quotations mixing because it was a lot of rape, right? <laughs> yeah. Mixing with indigenous populations to dilute our blood and make it whiter. And there was this device, really intentional campaign to eliminate our ancestry yep. through rape and genocide. Yep. And that's what we're so proud of. Yep. Yeah. I want, <laughs> I want to pause on something, though. I want to repeat something you said. You said people don't know. And I want to take this conversation to educational privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about how you learned this in college. Yes. And I think a lot of the anti-Blackness, the anti-Indigenousness really gets perpetuated because people don't know and they don't have access to a lot of the privileges that you and I have had, mm -hmm. namely education, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about my mother, for example. She was born in 1950, rural poor Mexico, right? Only got a sixth grade education and it's amazing she did that much given the time and the context. She is an incredibly intelligent woman who wouldn't be so anti-Black and anti-Indigenous in the way that she is if she had just gotten an education, right? Mm -hmm. So now let's fast forward to I'm sitting in grad school class and they're teaching us, you know, in our diversity class about anti-Blackness in so many words at that time, it's not what it was called. And they bring up the example of Mamin Bingwin, <laughs> which is a cartoon in Mexico, an old cartoon in Mexico 
of essentially what's I guess supposed to be a little black boy, but it's really a monkey. Oh, it's no. so offensive. It's so offensive. It's horrible. So I like call my mom and I'm like, hey, you know, maybe big wee And she's like, yeah, he's like a funny little animal or like a character little boy or whatever it is that she said. And I was like, mom, this is actually very racist and, or, you know, very anti-black, very biased against black people. And she's like, what? No, it's just funny. And like, I really do think that she would get it had she had the resources had she had the education like she is someone who values conversation above anything else and and if someone with a dark black skin talked to her you know she would have a laugh and she would have a good time but it's that part of the reason part of the colonization of us has also been denying us access to knowledge about our own history and when we don't have that knowledge when we don't have the history when we have to wait until we're in college to sit in these classrooms and be and understand oh my god these are all the ways in which my my race, my ethnicity, my blood has been tried to be colonized and made more white for the satisfaction of, of white supremacy, all these things. But we have to wait that long. It's why we spend all this time perpetuating anti-blackness and why I have a lot of hope that the more we can help people know what you just said about how our, you know, the European model for mixing us, it's important. It's important that people know what they're actually saying when they talk about anti-blackness. We talk a lot as a society about how black people's history and culture was stolen from mm -hmm. them because they were forcibly yes. displaced. What a lot of people, again, don't know is that we were also displaced mm -hmm. and had our history mm -hmm. erased because people think about immigration as this voluntary thing. Mm -hmm. So first of all, all of these lands are colonized, yep. right? So yep. we, we, were, let, we start with that initial displacement however many years ago. But then you take it a step further, and we all know how the, or we all, all of us who went to college know how the U.S. intervened in the politics of Central and South America to, in, in that war, right? And, and the fear of communism, right? And so when we talk about these large immigration waves in the 70s and 80s, we're talking about destabilization of our countries by the U.S. government, mm -hmm. soldiers trained by the U.S. government. So we were also forcibly displaced. So then we've lost our history two ways. We lost our histories in the countries that our families are from mm -hmm. because of the intentional campaigns to whiten the race there. Mm -hmm. And then our families are moved, and now we're placed in this foreign education system that's not interested in teaching us about our history. And so we have these two major points in which we lose our history and we have to like walk ourselves back to understand what this is about. Mm -hmm. And that challenge is ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. All we have is all these other messages that we're hearing that are contradictory to whatever our history is. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, these messages, you know, also have to do a lot with socioeconomic status, Trump's race in the country. So if I think about particularly people that were poor, you know, that's my own family's background. And so that's kind of the context in which I approach it is you're kind of also put in a situation where you have to survive and you have to like fight for scraps. And so a lot of this messaging is like whether people realize this is what they're saying or trying to do or not, it's like a fight to get out from the bottom of the totem pole. It's, it's a fight to like not associate with people who you know damn well this country and this world treats as the least among us, which is offensive. So instead of turning around and saying, I don't accept that and I will fight for the liberation of my of, of black people because their liberation is tied to mine, they do what their survival instincts tell them to do, which is kind of like outrun this person instead of trying to do better for everybody else. It's the crafts and barrel mentality that keeps us all down. And so people are 
when they're anti-black for so long, I think that's also connected to trauma histories and witnessing those terrible trauma that's gone on for black people or depending on the country for like whoever the darkest people there are and people not wanting to be associated with that or to be the next victim of colonization or of trauma. And I get that instinct to run away from it. And, and I think we're in a different place now where we have to acknowledge what's happened, the way this has been orchestrated and that we don't have to do that anymore. We can get better. And we now know that we can also carry trauma and pass it on through our DNA. So many, and so, so many generations, right? Yeah. So much learned behavior. And so we talk about this trauma and this desire to survive. And what that brings up for me is the immigration year, mm -hmm. right? The story that we tell about the American dream mm -hmm. that you just work hard enough. Yeah. Right. And the it, it took me a long time into my adulthood to realize that that narrative is extremely anti-black. Right. Because of that, that, that for me growing up, it was like, well, clearly black people are lazy because look, yeah. we worked a little bit hard. Right. We, we just worked a little. We worked harder than they did. And we have a house. Yeah. And we have a car and you got to go to school because we made that choice. So this idea that our situation is our choice and yeah, if you, you can do it. If you didn't do it, that's actually clearly your fault. So black people are inherently lazy. That's why they haven't been able to get this far. Yeah. And you know, the irony then is because, you know, that part was never addressed and we never did enough in the Latinx community to address that. I mean, we're also getting caught up in that same narrative too, except that different words are being used. It's kind of like, well, you know, not everybody's cut out for this work or, you know, this person's, you know, this white person over here is motivated, you know, which is like, think about who that's excluding and what that's about people. Those kinds of things are still happening. And so it, it brings me back to like, yes, you know, this um, immigrant American dream of like, we work very hard for that. It's only biting us in the butt because no one is seeing that hard work that you that you let's validate it and say, yes, you work very hard. A, no one's seeing that hard work. And B, that's not what this is about. That's not why Black people have experienced the things that they've experienced. I haven't been able to quote unquote buy the house or whatever that metaphor is. It's because of a lot of systemic oppression that actively works to keep people down. And, and this is that part, right? Yeah, this is, we, we keep going back to this erasing of history, yeah. right? And not being taught and how relevant that is. And it's so funny because I remember starting to break all of this down for my mom, right? And because I was like a kid and so offended that, you know, family members would say what they say. And it's really funny because I, I had such a proud moment. So when, you know, the, the, the protests were happening and white people were talking about the rights and the looting. So somebody, one of my, my mom's a housekeeper. So she works for a lot of really rich white people. And somebody made the comment to her that it's so sad how these people are destroying property in, in Chicago, right? And my mom tells me in her broken English, because she wanted me to get exactly what she said. She was like, I told her it was really sad that she valued property more than she valued lives. And I was like, yes, mom. We, had not, we had not talked about it. And so it's this thing, right? Why we're doing this podcast, because it's in the education that you start to turn these ideas around because like you said if you know better yeah. you have to believe that a lot of our families if they, they yeah. had the education they would do better mm -hmm. right and so that was a really proud mom moment for me i was like you've come so far yeah yeah absolutely it's it's about it's about giving people the resources we've been denied access to for so long primarily in, in this case in this context educational ones and it's 
it's also about having uncomfortable conversations, right? Because I think, the, you know, I, I train traditionally as a psychotherapist. And so the, there's the part of me that always sees things through that lens. And when I think about one of the other reasons why people hold on to this American dream narrative so strongly, I think it's also because it's a protection from their own trauma that's happened. It's like, instead of saying I'm a refugee from my country, because had I been given the choice, I would have stayed there and raised my family there, but I didn't have a way to feed my family and I had to flee, you know, instead of talking about that and sitting with that and healing from that, it's like, I got to live the American dream voluntarily. When truth be told, most people, even who have that narrative that I've encountered, long for their land and yes. long for where they're from. And, but to like cope and survive, you know, with the, the difficult decision and the grief and the loss, it's like, well, I'm living the American dream and I'm doing it better than this black person next to me kind of thing. It's like, that's fine. You can stay stuck there, but there's a lot of other things that go there. When we, when we acknowledge the trauma, that's maybe what's hard too about our two communities coming together. That's mm -hmm. like, who wants to sit with that much trauma without the resources to like heal or cope or, or live or roof over their head. And, and that's in the large context, that's what's really hard. Yeah. It's so funny because you talk about how many long for their land. My mm -hmm. mom just purchased a home in El Salvador mm -hmm. and my aunt purchased one in Costa Rica. That's where my uncle's from a long time ago. Like nobody, when, when given a true choice, they don't want to be here either. Mm -hmm. and, and it's so interesting because we think about these messages, especially today, politics, like go back to where you came from or whatever. You know, actually that brings up for me, did you see that news story that was circling around about that Ukrainian little boy that traveled a bunch of miles to get to safety and how he was being called a hero? No. So there is a story that's been circulating. Mm -hmm. And now in some of the blogs, one of the ones that's circulating with it is all the unaccompanied yeah. minors at the border that are being detained mm -hmm. and searched. And people forget that all of these populations are just fundamentally being forcibly displaced. Yeah. Yep, the refugees. These are not folks chasing. They never ever woke up one day and it's like, I need to chase the American dream as like their number one thing. By and large, most of them are people fleeing, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I appreciate the attention that's being paid to the war and the trauma that's happening in Ukraine. And I would love to see more conversations and more acknowledgements of the people who live this all the time as well. It may, it may not look in this way, but it does. And it's just another form of anti-Blackness. It's another form of kind of like, when it happens to a white body, we need to pay attention and do something about it. We need to care when it happens to anybody that's not white. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. swept under the rug. It's just kind of like your lot in life because you didn't work hard enough and you brought it upon yourself. Okay, so we just covered a lot. We covered some history, talked a little bit about where we're at today. What do you think needs to happen going forward? Like, how do we take it from this conversation? Yeah. We need to talk about this more openly and with each other and understand that our liberation is tied to, you know, in the black and brown communities, our liberations are tied to each other. And change happens on a one-to-one -one basis, right? So when I'm growing up and I'm receiving these anti-Black messages, I'm also like in first grade. And my best friend who like played tag with me is a little Black boy. And so that I feel like protected me from ever 100% buying into the anti-Black messages I would receive because it's like, that can't be true because this, you know, wonderful little Black boy and I have a great time playing tag. And so it, it can't be what people tell me it is. And that's what needs to happen. We need to have more 
dialogue and we need to have more conversation. We need to have more shared spaces where we're not afraid of each other or giving into the, the pressure from white supremacy to hate each other. We need to spend time together in safe, fun, playful spaces. So, you know, the, those are great closing words. And I just realized that we didn't cover one topic that's really important here. Afro-Latinos. Yes. And because we, we're yes. all saying black and brown on purpose, right? Yes. We're not saying Latinos yes. and black. Yeah. Because... We need uh, to cover this, yes. Yes, we need yes. to talk about... Black people within mm -hmm. the Latinx diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. And so this one's been interesting because I have my American Black friends, and a lot of people don't know what it means. What what is even an Afro Latino to begin with, right? So I don't know if you want to take a shot at answering that one. I mean, basically, from my understanding, it's folks who acknowledge, claim the African part of the blood in them that are also Latinx. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because I've had so many conversations with friends about this because we have some places that we widely understand to have a large amount of Afro-Latinos, the Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, yes, Cuba, yes, that also erases that there's a huge Afro-Latinx population in Mexico yes. and Honduras and Panama and Belize, right? And so the question consistently comes up like... How much black do you have to have in your history? Because most of us do have something, yeah. right? Yes. If, if we're being honest yes. about the history, most of us have something. And if we run our DNA. <laughs> yeah, when I ran mine, it definitely yes. showed up, right? Yes. So most of us have at least 10%. Some people are mostly black when you look at the history. So how much, what constitutes an Afro-Latino? Mm -hmm. I don't have an answer, and let me tell you why. It's very hard to impose race on folks, because that's essential we're talking about. We're talking about Afro Latino, you know, whether you know we put it that way or not, it goes back to race. And race is a social construct. It's right. a thing that we've made up based on the way we look and, and wanting a hierarchy based on like skin color and, and who is blackest and who is whitest. And so given that race is a social construct and in and, and, and the Latinx culture, our culture is so important, I want people to claim that for themselves and be able to say, I am Afro-Latino for X, Y, and C reason because of my skin color, because of my Taino roots, because of the texture of my hair. And I'll never deny that for anyone. What I'd like to see is more people owning that and, and, and understanding the reason for that. Because, you know, I also grew up in a time where, of course, you just mentioned I went to college, you know, with, for example, people who are Dominican. And if the police pulled them over, they would assume they're a Black person the way that we typically define Black Americans in this country. And yet they're like, oh, I'm not I'm not Black. And it's like, okay, right. Well, okay, I, I won't tell someone what their, what their race is, but I hope you never get pulled over by the police because they're going to treat you like they treat Black people in this country, which is brutal and violent in way too many instances. So I would love to see more movement around people not fearing identifying as, as Afro Latino and not fearing or celebrating the way that they look, even if that is darker than like the people who have more colonizer blood in them. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a good answer. I don't think I get to decide who, who, how to identify being Afro Latino given that race a social contract, but I would like to see more people identify and claim that part of their identity. Yeah, I think it's a really complicated. One of my friends ran their DNA test and they came out two-thirds European, one-third Black. Now, we know in specific days in this country, the yep. one-drop rule, yep. right? Yep. A little bit means, but this person can be white passing. Mm -hmm. And so that that that's what begs the question, at what point do you, can you celebrate your Blackness ancestry without being offensive to those who are racialized as Black. So there's the question of identity and what 
your yes. actual DNA makeup is. And then there's the second piece about how you're racialized in this country right. specifically, right? Right. We don't even get to explore this conversation much because of anti-Blackness in yeah. our communities and how unsafe it is in this country to identify uh, Blackness within our communities, yes. to your point, right? Yeah. And your point is like, that was expected of, of mine. It's like, what happens when people celebrate it for concerning reasons? You know, I think about like that famous example of Rachel Dozal or no, she was just something else. <laughs> something else, right? So, so putting her something else in the extreme category, right? Like what, at what point do people get to claim that African part of themselves that's a good question. And, and I don't think we're going to, I think we need to have more of these conversations to decide or to figure out if we even can a consensus because I don't, I don't know. And I certainly don't feel qualified to say it has to be this much. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's definitely an ongoing conversation, but one of the things that gives me hope is the fact that these conversations are happening more often, that people are becoming more educated because for that particular conversation, it, it's an interesting one to have with Black Americans too, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of Black Americans feel that, you know, anecdotally feel that it is somebody potentially taking their experience. Like mm -hmm. the Black American experience is a very unique one, mm -hmm. right? And so what is the overlap in the Afro-Latino experience and the Black experience becomes a question. So going back to wrapping up, so you talked a little bit about healing and having more conversations. Do you, is there anything else you would like to add to this particular conversation? Takeaways for people to have. Yeah, I think the big takeaway is these are, are complex issues and they need to be talked about and they need to be addressed so people can feel more equipped and safer to stand up when they see anti-Blackness happening and do something about it. That needs to happen. Well, thank you for coming today and having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. It's produced and researched by me, Catherine Best, with special help from Monica George, Tyronica Boone, and Dave of Mixed Media. Stay tuned because next week, Bessie will be joined by Ozzy Godinez to chat about multicultural marketing and empowering other people of color in the workforce. Thanks for listening.